You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. You can be seated. Thank you, worship band. Uh, man, I love, like Adam said, I love that we saw a little frost in the air and on the ground this morning. I love that we got the Christmas decorations out. And I love that we are in the middle of our Advent series talking about, we always talk about Jesus as a gift, exactly what kind of gift was he. So today we're going to be in Luke 2. And as I was studying Luke 2, I had flashbacks, uh, some good, some bad, of a Christmas children's memory that I'm sure a lot of us have in common, being in the Christmas play at school and at church. And I got to thinking, you know, every year we followed the same casting. You needed Mary and Joseph, and that was always Mr. and Mrs. Popular. And then you needed an angel, and the angel was always kind of the most angelic-looking young girl in the church whose family was well-known, and she got this big, huge, fancy costume. Uh, then we needed some wise men, and I always thought, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I know I'm not a Joseph, maybe I'll be a wise man. No, that never happened. So they get these real elaborate costumes for the wise men. They get to walk out in front of everybody and carry the gifts, and all of them have speaking parts. All those people have speaking parts. And then, after we get through all that, then there's the everyone else group. And that's what I was always in, the shepherds. Everyone else, everyone who's left over, let's just make them shepherds. No nice costume, just cut a hole in a sheet, throw it on them. No speaking parts. All they got to do is just, at the right moment, look surprised. That's all you got to do. And that was always me, the everyone else group. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking in Luke 2. It's, it's, probably the most uh, quoted scripture in all the Bible. It's the most detailed account we have of the birth of Jesus Christ. There's a group here, though, that seems out of place, I think, that is totally out of place as the, not just to be present, but as the focus, the centerpiece of this chapter. See, we expect to see Mary and Joseph. We expect to see angels. We expect that. We may even expect, we're going to see the emperor Caesar Augustus, but none of them is the focus of the passage. The focus of Luke 2 is these lowly shepherds, the everyone else group. That's who Luke turns his attention to in chapter 2, because the shepherds are the one that receive the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, the lowly shepherds. And God's message to the shepherds this in Luke 2, and I think his message to us this morning is this, Jesus gives the gift of peace. Jesus gives us, us the gift of peace. And if the message of peace is for the shepherds, then it's a message of peace for you too. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now Luke is a historian, so he's setting these events in a historical context. So he sets this grand announcement of this coming king in the context of another king, Caesar Augustus. Now Caesar Augustus, he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, but he was Julius Caesar's favorite Uh, nephew. And so Julius Caesar made him his heir. And so he took over after Julius Caesar. His name wasn't always Caesar Augustus. His mama didn't give him that name. His mama gave him the name Octavian. 
but he changed it to Augustus. And Augustus means holy. The first Caesar who'd ever been called that. Up until then, they only used that name for gods. And so it was him, him saying, in the Roman culture agreeing, he is a god. And this Augustus claimed to be the savior of the world, and he claimed to bring peace to the world. The Pax Romana, he called it. The Roman peace. And in large part, he did. He was very effective. But what's important to understand is how he brought this peace. The way Augustus brought his peace was by bludgeoning every foe into submission until he was the unquestioned leader of the Roman world. So he may have called it a Pax Romana, but for a lot of people, it was not a very peaceful time, particularly the Jewish people. In fact, you can make the argument that this is one of the worst times in Jewish history. They live under the oppression of the Romans who are their invading oppressors. And we see it with Mary and Joseph. Here's just two nobodies about to have a baby who are forced to uproot their lives, travel to the land of their heritage so they can register to pay this Augustus probably an absurd amount of money compared to what they have so they can pay him taxes. On top of all that, probably worse than all that, God has been silent for 500 years. So Caesar Augustus, he's issuing edicts left and right. We haven't heard from God for 500 years. So from a human perspective, from Mary and Joseph's perspective, God probably never seemed more distant. Uh, His promises probably never seemed more impossible than they were on that day. So why does Luke put this in the context of Caesar Augustus? Because he wants us to know God is sovereign, not Caesar. God is sovereign. He will use this Caesar, he will use this Roman government to get Joseph and Mary exactly where he wants them. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, because that's what he said he would do hundreds of years before this day. See, back in Micah 5, God promised this Savior, this Messiah who would come, he would be from the lineage of David, and he would be born in Bethlehem. So is this Caesar Augustus, as he sat in his palace, issuing his decrees, he thought it was a supreme exercise of his will, the ultimate flexing of his muscle. Look what I can make everyone do. But he was just a tool in God's hand. Something bigger is happening. God is in the driver's seat. All things are under God's control. And God, with all of his control, with all of his sovereignty, is going to bring peace. Not Roman peace. Real peace. And this announcement of peace, it's not going to come with lots of grandiosity like like Caesar would do it. It's going to come in humility. And so in verse 6 and 7, we get the account of Jesus' birth. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. You know, one of the striking things about Luke's account of the birth is how simple it is, especially in contrast to how great these events are. The birth, it's not really all that descriptive. It's not all that detailed. What it is is incredibly common. You don't know about y'all, but when my kids were being born, it was a big deal. There were flowers, there's balloons, there's fruit trays, people are coming in town, there's birth announcements, there's all kinds of hoopla going on. In fact, my youngest, she was born on December 31st, so we knew she was due towards the beginning of the year. And we thought, you know what, maybe, maybe if we hang on long enough, we'll, she'll be born the first baby of the year. And you know, we'll get on the news, the news cameras will come, we'll be famous for a little while. Not with Jesus. Simple, 
humble, no grandiosity, no balloons, no flowers or fruit trays, no news coverage. We're told he's put in the manger. This manger, it wasn't some quaint, faux distressed wood crib from Pottery Barn or anything. It's probably just a stone and the top had been carved out a little bit with just enough room for a baby. This then wasn't a hotel. It wasn't even a motel, y'all. It was a public shelter. And that public shelter was full. And so they had to go to uh, the stable, which was probably right next to it. And it was probably just a little opening and a little cave on the side of a rock. And perhaps what's even more surprising in the humility of these events is who gets the announcement of the birth. Now, y'all, these, these next few verses are, I always have the same picture and the same video in my head because of a certain show I saw all growing up having to do with Christmas. So I thought instead of me reading these verses, I'm going to ask for a little help reading these verses. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I don't know about y'all, but that is so burned into my childhood memory. I almost expect when I open my Bible it to say, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I expect that to actually be in the text. So the scene changes to a hillside outside the city where some shepherds are watching their flocks of sheep. Now these shepherds, they're, they're the opposite of Caesar Augustus. They were the bottom of society. In fact, if you were accused of a crime and the only witness who could testify in your favor was a shepherd, you're out of luck. That means you got no witnesses. Their testimony, they were so mistrusted, their testimony was not allowed in court. We know they were usually the runts of the family. Think David, he was the smallest. That's why they sent him out to be the shepherd. Uh, they were marginal. They were fringe. No one wanted to be around them. They smelled like what they worked with and stepped in, okay? And y'all, these weren't even the day shift shepherds. These are the night shift shepherds. It doesn't get any more lowly than this. And then to these Normal, lowly, night shift shepherds, just another night to them. Their monotony is interrupted with an angel of the Lord, who is the first preacher of the gospel. And they react the same way everyone reacts, of the way the King James say, says it. They are sore afraid. Everyone who sees an angel just cowers in fear. Why? Because when these lowly people, when they encounter the heavenly, instinctively they know and they feel 
their unworthiness. They feel the fact, you know, when God draws near, the first question they have is, okay, is this a good thing? Will he bring judgment? Is he here to crush his enemies like Caesar Augustus? And we found out quickly, no. He comes with a message of peace. And so in verse 10, the angel gives this message, and she she says, it's good news. This is the word for gospel. It is good news. This angel preaches the gospel for the very first time. Well, who? Who is it good news for? She says, all the people, to all mankind, the Caesars, to the shepherds, the big, the little, the young, the old, the black, the white, the rule followers, the rebels, the high class, the low class, the confident, the insecure, the happy, the depressed. It's for all people. And she tells us what this good news is. And she gives Jesus three descriptions. He is Savior, He is Christ, and He is Lord. And this is the only verse in the whole Bible where those three descriptions are all together in one place. He is Savior, He is Christ, and He is Lord. He's a Savior, and we need that. You know, most people, we want a friend in God, we want a protector in God, we want a vending machine in God, but what we need is a Savior. We ain't want other things, But a Savior is what we need. Have you ever sinned against God? What will you do about that? What can you do about that? You can't do anything. You need a Savior. That's why back in Matthew 1, when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus for, because here's what he's going to do, he will save their people from their sins. He is the one that can save you from your sins. A little later in his life, it's recorded in Mark 2. You know, Jesus, he's doing a Bible study. Uh, and they're in this one little room. And all of a sudden, study the Bible. All of a sudden, the Bible study is interrupted because the roof starts falling in. So if I'm ever leading a Bible study and the roof starts falling in, Bible study over. I, we're doing something else all of a sudden. And it's falling in because there's a crippled man whose friends have tr- brought him to Jesus, hoping Jesus will heal them. And the only way they can get to him is from above. So they peel back the roof, they lower this guy down, and of course everyone's still in the room saying, what is going to happen now? So Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. To which I imagine their friends say, okay, but we were kind of here for something else. Uh, can, Can you do the other thing, Jesus? Well, there's Pharisees in the room. And as soon as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, that's when they start reaching for their rocks and their stones to stone him. Because only God can forgive sins. They know that. And before they can say anything, though, Jesus looks right at them, says, pop quiz, Pharisees, which is more difficult for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say to him, get off your mat and walk, to which I imagine they said, this feels like a trap, because it is a trap, because they know what they're supposed to say. They're supposed to say, you can't tell this man his sins are forgiven unless you're God. But on the other hand, it'll be pretty amazing if he tells the guy to get up and walk, and he does. So what does Jesus do? Well, he does both. But he wants us to know which one is the most important. He says, okay, I'm going to heal this man, but here's why. It is so that, for the purpose of, you may know that I have the power to forgive sins. That is what I want you to know. The Son is here to forgive you. I I know we want lots of other things from God, but this is our greatest need. We need a Savior because we have sinned against God. He's Savior. He's also Christ. And this word Christ was code word packed full of meaning for every Jewish person. It means anointed one. It means uh, Messiah. It's the long-predicted, long-awaited, often-prophesied anointed one. 
He's the final anointed king from God, the final anointed prophet from God, the final anointed priest from God. In fact, 2 Corinthians is going to go on to say it this way. All God's promises find their answer, find their yes, find their amen in Jesus. So you could say, apart from Jesus, there are no promises of God. They are all in him because he is this promised Christ. And finally, he is the Lord. The ruler, the sovereign, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the Lord of the universe, the one who exercises supernatural authority over all things. That's who this baby is. Caesar Augustus has nothing on this guy. Now, I think most of us, well, we want the first two more than we want the third. We want the Savior. We want the Christ. But like Caesar, we don't want a Lord because we want to be Lord. We want to be in charge. But what we have to understand this morning is you don't get Savior or Christ without the Lord. Either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. So that's the description we get from the angel of this baby. And then we get the sign. And the sign is supposed to be a picture of this description. To me, what's most interesting here in verse 12 is what the sign is not. There's a lot of things that could have been the sign, but the angels are not the sign. The glowing night sky is not the sign. The, the star is not the sign. What's the sign? A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Why, do, why does Luke give us these details? Well, when the shepherds, when they find this baby, he's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's going to be wrapped up much like a mummy, laying in a stone trough that looks a lot like a tiny coffin. And so what the angel is foreshadowing here is that the, the Savior, Christ, Lord, this eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, the King of the universe and of all creation, he's going to enter the world in a cave born into poverty in the, the midst of a scandal to a teenage girl. He's going to be welcomed by smelly night shift shepherds. And he's going to be greeted with what would have looked like grave clothes in a coffin. And that's the sign. That's the sign. We discover this baby is the opposite of Caesar. Instead of slaughtering others, he himself is going to be slaughtered. Instead of oppressing others, he himself is going to be oppressed. He will bring peace, not with an iron fist, but by submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. And that's not the sign that these lowly shepherds may have expected. But listen, it is certainly the sign they understood. We're pretty sure that we know where these shepherds were. They were probably about two miles outside of Jerusalem, uh, outside of Bethlehem, sorry, in an area called the Shepherd's Field. And this is the place where the sheep were kept and prepared for the Passover. These shepherds were watching over sheep who were being prepared to be slaughtered on the Passover as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the people. These shepherds had spent their whole lives with flocks of substitute sacrifices. And so they would have understood better than just about anybody exactly what John the Baptist meant when he looked at this Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They knew it meant this Savior, this Christ, this Lord will take our place in death so that we may have life. That's the sign. And then we get the message. And the message looks a little bit more like what we may expect. Because in verse 13, the sky just rips open with awesomeness. 
And we see not one angel, but it says a host of angels. And that word is actually the word for an army. We get an army of angels. These are the world's first carolers. And they are here to tell us the meaning of this child who will be the Passover lamb. And what follows is not a declaration of war. It is a declaration of peace. The moment Jesus showed up, the angels are telling us a way to peace with God opened up. It's not Roman peace. It's real peace. Peace with God. Do you know this morning that you need peace with God? I think many times people miss the Christmas message because we don't know we need peace with God. We want peace from God, but we don't know we need peace with God. See, I think most people, you ask them to say, you know what, me, me and God, we're good. We're fine. We're at peace. It's the rest of my life that needs some peace. And so, you know, we want God to swoop in and fix the turmoil and the brokenness in our relationships or fix our difficult, difficult circumstances or maybe even help us with our emotional struggles, our, our mental struggles. Or maybe we just want God to make life a little less difficult for us. But what we fail to realize is that all other forms of unrest, all other forms of difficulty in our lives, they all originate from the same place. All of them. We don't have peace with God. That's where it all comes from. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Eden. The rest of the world spun out of control. Why? Because our relationship with God was severed. The first cause of all the other difficulties we experience is that we started a war with God. You see, sin, it's a little like a coup. God is God. He, he is Lord. But we've all decided we want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to all be little Caesars in control of our own lives. And peace with God means you give control over your whole life back to him because he is God. It means he is Lord and I am not in every minute detail of your life. Now, y'all, that's hard to do. In fact, there is nothing harder to do, I would argue. Our human nature is going to rebel against that and struggle with that every day of our lives. See, it's one thing to say I'm at peace with God because I'm really ignoring him and I'm doing what I want to do. It's a whole nother thing to say I'm at peace with God because I am submitted to him in every thought, word, deed, and feeling in my life. Is that you? Are you fully submitted to God in every thought, word, deed, and feeling of your life? Let me help you with that. No, you're not. And I'm not either. That's why our greatest need is peace with God. It's not peace from God. We need peace with God. How in the world can this little baby do that? How can this little baby bring us peace with God? Here's how. You may not be perfectly submitted to God in every thought, word, deed, and feeling, but he will be. This baby will be, and he'll do it for you. And by faith, you are in him. He does it for you, and you are in him. This is the way Colossians 1, 21 and 22 puts it. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's why you don't have peace with God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, listen to this, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, you were at war with God, but because of Jesus' death, you are now blameless before God. 
You cannot have any less blame. I don't care how hard you try tomorrow. I don't care how much better you do tomorrow. You cannot have any less blame than you do now before God. In fact, you're above reproach. God cannot find any fault in you right now if you've put your faith in him. Why? Because you're in Jesus. And he was perfectly submitted to the Father. Jesus brings the gift of peace, but it's the peace we really need. It is peace with God. So how do we respond to this gift of peace this Christmas season? Well, I think the last few verses, there's some application for our lives. So let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So we're told the shepherds, they go with haste. I picture them just sprinting the two miles back to Bethlehem. And sure enough, they find the exact scene that the angels described. And I just picture them huffing and out of breath, but so excited. Like, there was an angel and the thing, and you're right there, and I can't believe it. And, and then they say in verse 17, they, they tell Mary and Joseph everything the angels had said. And of course, Mary and Joseph, they've met angels. They've had experience with angels. They know, and so they probably knew. Let me guess the first line. Don't be afraid. Yeah, that, that's the angel of the guys. We saw that you've met him. Yeah, we saw them too. And they're so excited. See, this Christmas, I think we could use some of the shepherds' excitement and some of their uh, eagerness to share their peace. And so I think this Christmas, one thing we can do is be like the shepherds. Share your peace. Share your peace. There's a reason God has put you where he's put you. It says in verse 10, all who heard wondered at what they said. So apparently they keep telling everybody. They're just so excited. It's interesting to me that the first preacher of the gospel is an angel. And I'm like, that's a great messenger, God. You should use angels. But you know what? This is the last time we hear angels preaching the gospel. From here on out, that job is giving to you and to me, beginning with some lowly shepherds. Not the priests, not the religious leaders, not the rulers, not the celebrities, not Caesar. The everyone else group. Y'all go share the message. It says people who heard it wondered. This word wondered, it's the same word used to describe people who have seen miracles themselves. So watch this. The shepherds, they experienced the miracle. They saw the angels. But then as they went and they told what had happened, it's like the miracle multiplied. It's like more and more people experienced it as if they had been there themselves. You know, I, I get worried sometimes in our culture, in our church culture, that we way overcomplicate sharing the gospel. You know, we, we tend to make it about memorization and, and uh, clever arguments. You know, that makes it a chore. Frankly, it makes it awkward many times. But notice the shepherds. They're eager. They're joyful. They're excited. Why? Did they just love awkward situations? No. They were simply telling the story of what God did. That's all they were doing. Men and women, sharing Jesus is simply telling the story of what God has done for you. That's all it is. There's no formula. You can do that a thousand different ways. It shouldn't be a chore. It should come naturally when we experience the gift of peace with God. But realize this, church. The job that started with the angels has now been passed down to you and to me. God isn't sending another host of angels into your family, into your neighborhood, into your workplace. He's sending you. 
And if he can use some shepherds, he can use you. You know, Christmas, it strikes me, it's, it's one of the few times left in our culture where people, even, even if just a little bit, even if just barely, in, in some small way, most of our culture turns their attention to Jesus still. What if, what if we use this Christmas season not just to get angry about Starbucks cups and angry when people say happy holidays? What if we use this Christmas season to share our peace? Look for ways to share your story of how you've experienced Jesus. Maybe to someone who is lost, maybe to someone who is hurting, maybe to someone who has no idea that they need peace with God. And then as we, as we do that, let's remember the humility in which Jesus came into the world. Have you noticed that? So much humility. He came as a humble baby to humble parents, announced to humble shepherds. And that humility helped communicate the peace. Do you see that? It, if the peace came in humility, then it seems to me that peace ought to be shared with humility, shouldn't it? Not in pride in all the ways we get it right. Not in frustration in all the ways others get it wrong. Not concerned with our own wants and our own rights. But let us share our peace in humility this Christmas season. I think we should also be a little bit like Mary. And we should treasure our peace. Just as much as we share our peace, we should take time this Christmas season to treasure our peace. Verse 19 to me is an amazing verse. It's filled with, with mystery. It says, Mary treasured these things in her heart. Now remember, Luke's, Luke's a historian. Luke's into facts and records. But it's almost as if when he went to interview Mary about what happened, she just couldn't talk about it. It's almost as if for her it was just too holy for words. And so the scriptures say she, she pondered what the shepherd said. She weighed it. She meditated on it. She worshiped those words. And you know, we don't do enough of that. At least I don't. Now, we like to Facebook. We like to Twitter. We like to yell at our kids so they smile for the Christmas card, you know. And, and always, We got a bunch of those in this week. And I love them. They're great. Always want to see, though, the picture from 10 seconds before, you know, when they're all yelling and screaming at each other. And, and then the parents had to resort to bribery. Or is that just my family? That's just how it goes with us? Okay. We find ways to package our lives to look like we're at peace. But do we take the time to treasure the peace in our hearts like Mary did? You know, sometimes I think we just, we just move too quickly from one thing to the next thing. We stay too busy to reflect sometimes. And the worst thing is, is Christmas season is, is when it's the easiest to do that. We stay so busy in the Christmas time of year. But there are moments in your life that God has broken into your world. Holy moments. Take some time this Christmas season to treasure those moments, to remember them. Set aside time to worship them. Be filled with awe once again in what God has done in your life. There's a line that I love in O Holy Night. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. Maybe you need to set some time aside this Christmas season to let your soul feel the worth of Jesus Christ. There's all kind of ways you can do it. Maybe listen to some of those old Christmas hymns. Read this Christmas story to yourself. Recount the time you first experienced God. Maybe you can do it with your family. When, when was the last time you sat together with your family and shared your salvation experience with your family? 
Maybe it means going to one less event. Maybe it means a few less presents. But I pray that we would take some time this season in the midst of the chaos of Christmas to just sit, to pray, to meditate on the coming of Jesus Christ. Let us all treasure our gift of peace with God this Christmas. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.